This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting to hold politicians accountable for better health care. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Chaos at airports around the world and the drive to give Jewish soldiers a proper burial 76 years after they were killed in World War II. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It was a tiny trial with just 18 rectal cancer patients, but the results mark a milestone never before seen in the history of cancer. The cancer vanished in every single patient. After a course of treatment with the immunotherapy drug Dostarlimab, all their tumors were undetectable by physical exams, endoscopy, and other scans and biopsies. The study is published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Parents and grandparents of Canadian citizens and permanent residents can now stay in the country for up to seven consecutive years. Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada announced the change to the Super Visa program, which previously only permitted stays of up to two years. I never forget that day, what happened to me. This week marks the 50th anniversary of an iconic image depicting the horrors of the Vietnam War. On June 8, 1972, a young photographer named Nick Oot took a photo of a nine-year-old Vietnamese girl, Kim Phuc, running naked after being severely burned by a napalm bomb dropped on her village. The Pulitzer Prize-winning photograph quickly became known as the Napalm Girl, although officially it is called the Terror of War. Kim, who now calls Toronto home, wrote an op-ed piece in the New York Times this week where she says that she was once shamed and embarrassed by her disfigurement. Five decades on, she says, I am not Napalm Girl anymore. Sir David Attenborough has been given a second knighthood for services to television and conservation. The 96-year-old, who's the same age as the Queen, was first knighted by Her Majesty in 1985, but this week received an even higher accolade at an investiture ceremony at Windsor Castle. The Prince of Wales bestowed the honor of Knight Grand Cross of the Order of St. Michael and St. George. Legendary Canadian painter Christopher Pratt has died at the age of 86. He painted the Newfoundland and Labrador landscape with artwork that achieved international acclaim. Pratt was often called one of Canada's greatest painters over the course of his extensive and successful career, which earned him appointment to both the Order of Canada and the Order of Newfoundland and Labrador. His work is held in galleries from coast to coast, including the National Gallery of Canada. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Delayed and cancelled flights, huge waits on the tarmac after landing, 
even longer delays to get through security and customs. That is the reality around the world as tens of thousands of people rush to fulfill their delayed holiday plans. Travel insurance expert Martin Firestone experienced it all firsthand this week. I reached him a few hours after he got home to talk about what to expect and how to prepare. I came home from uh, Greece. Last night, I saw what happened in Pearson. I was kept on the plane. They let you off in groups of 50 every 30 minutes. It's a nightmare. But I experienced worse issues in Santorini and Tel Aviv and a few other places. So it's definitely something not just for Canada. It's all over the world. Okay, let, let, let me just get a fix on it. So how long did they keep you on the plane for? What happened is the minute it landed, they apologized that due to congestion in the airport, they would release people who have connecting flights to make, and everyone else has to stay on the plane. And it's called metering, new word for me, that <laughs> they would allow 50 people off every 30 minutes. We were a flight of 388 people on a Dreamliner, so you can do the math. Bottom line is you sat until you were able to be told you can leave. And then only to get into the terminal then to have your weight and the fun begin there for not only bags, but also going through customs also. How many hours were you stuck? Two hours. Two hours. Two hours. Yeah. Wow. Were you kept even longer in Tel Aviv and in Athens? So much so that we missed our flight, then missed the connecting flight, of which was a different airline. So they don't worry about paying the mistakes that the other airline made. And the bags went and didn't get on the next flight and weren't brought to us for two and a half days. So as you can see, frustration is mounting. Did you have a nice holiday? <laughs> we had the best time in the world, but I will tell you, I was cranky. I was frustrated. And I think I'm just one of millions of people of what they are going to experience and haven't even felt it yet because this summer it's going to get even worse. Martin, if people get travel insurance, and I'm assuming you had travel insurance, so are you out money or do you need to get compensated? What's What's the deal? So, you know, again, I talk about this as, as a livelihood, but until it happens to you, does it really become important? So sure enough, my bags, they are delayed for more than six hours. I call my office, they go, walk me through what I'm covered for for baggage. They confirm that if it's more than six hour delay for baggage, you are entitled to $900 each for essentials and da, 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 da. Well, I was thrilled to hear it, even though I'm in the business and I sell it. I wasn't sure exactly the amount. And we just did that. We went out and got clothing and bathing suits. We were in a beautiful resort in Santorini with a pair of shorts on for two and a half days. Well, that, that means that they can wreck your three-day trip there. So we did <laughs> what we had to do. And I will be reimbursed by the insurance because I bought trip interruption insurance that had a baggage element to it. But if I didn't, I'd be out the money and I don't know who I'd go after, whether it be LL whether it be Sky Express or whoever, it's just oh, no. nobody. Nobody takes responsibility, from what I can see. And mm -hmm. and uh, have you tried to collect yet? I, I came back last night at, at eight thirty at night. Like I'm working on seven hour in advance time right now. So, so I have put in a claim, and I got the claim paperwork, and now I'm getting together all my receipts and then proof that the bags were delayed more than six hours, and I will get it all back. What's the, what constitutes proof that the bags were delayed? Oh, I've got a a um, uh, notification from, you know, that when you come into the airport and your bags aren't there, you go to make a claim of some sort. So I've got that documentation. And then I have the hotel who went and got my bags for me two and a half days later, wrote a letter that we picked these bags up on Saturday night, which was two and a half days later. So I think I'm covered with basically everything. Plus, you know what? 
my broker, me, will be my advocate here and make sure I get paid. Marty, what should people make sure this time around that they have in their travel insurance? Definitely trip cancellation in the event they get COVID prior to departure or I scary enough after a recent announcement today about monkeypox. You got to worry about that maybe being a possibility and trip interruption if you did get COVID or monkeypox while you're away. Canada is not welcoming you back in. You will be isolating there. So interruption is key to cover costs, expenses, and new airfare home. So those are the two elements. And medical, as always, because you can't go anywhere without it. But all three mm-hmm. of those elements are now coming right to the spotlight because of the craziness that's going on with all. And one other comment I'll make, not only the cost of airfare and everything gone up, food, my God. Eating at these places now is becoming a very expensive ordeal from what I could see in my most recent trip. And you forgot to mention the baggage insurance that, that's that's covering you for 900 bucks. Yeah, baggage is included under the trip interruption portion of this particular product. So, yeah, Make you sure can it's buy there. baggage separately, too. That was Martin Firestone of Travel Secure. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Weekend Review coming up. Reconsecrating the graves of World War II soldiers buried with the rights of the wrong religion. You're listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review, brought to you by CARP, helping you unlock money you didn't know you had. Members only discounts that can save you tons. Find out more at carp.ca. marked the 78th anniversary of D-Day amid an ongoing effort to reconsecrate the graves of Jewish soldiers who were killed in World War II. While many were keen to join Allied forces to fight the Nazis, some concealed their faith because they feared worse treatment if they were captured. The result? They were buried under Christian crosses and given Christian rites. The work of finding those graves Replacing the headstones and offering descendants the proper religious ceremonies has resumed for the first time since the pandemic. Well, we estimate that across the two world wars and across the Commonwealth, there must be at least 200 war graves that have crosses on them or no symbols on them, which actually should have uh, stars of David. I would say, though, off the top of my head, that the number of Canadian graves involved between 20, 25, something like that. That's Martin Sugarman, an archivist for the Association of Jewish Ex-Servicemen and Women in Britain. But the work began in the U.S. when Shalom Lamb, an amateur historian, started Operation Benjamin. When did you and how did you realize that there were a lot of World War II era Jewish soldiers buried under crosses? I'm a military historian by training, and I I just I knew how many soldiers there should be there. That should be about 2.7 percent were Jewish of the U.S. casualties were Jewish, and so I set about to find out how many Jews were buried in Normandy. And the answer was there were 149. But statistically, there should have been about 250. We tried to um, figure out what the issue was, and then we said, you know what, let's try an experiment, almost a thought experiment. 
let's take a soldier with a Jewish-sounding name. It, it almost seems so amateurish at this point, but we had no idea what we were doing. It was just a, a hunch that he had, uh, and we alighted upon uh, a, a young soldier named Benjamin Garadetsky. That's why it's called Operation Benjamin. And we, uh, one of my in-laws, a wonderful fellow who was a, an amateur genealogist, Steve Lamar, um, and we worked together to try to construct the life of this soldier who ended up being a Jewish soldier buried under a, a cross. Turned out that his parents were buried in a Jewish cemetery just 10 minutes from my home on Long Island, New York. They were originally from Zhitomer, Russia, came to the Bronx. Uh, when Benjamin was six years old, he was ultimately killed in the war. Um, and he was a Jewish soldier. It was amazing. And um, that was the first soldier who sort of we, we went through a discovery process with him and with the U.S. government, the wonderful, wonderful folks at the American Battle Monuments Commission. And it was through that process that we realized, hold it, it's not just one soldier. There's hundreds and hundreds of soldiers who are were buried incorrectly during the war. There are reasons other than mistakes that they were buried this way, right? Sure, sure. So there, there are sort of a couple repeating primary reasons. I have to say, and it's really critical to emphasize, these weren't malicious in any way. These were real honest mistakes. And the most common one is that Jewish soldiers very often did not declare their religion, and in fact often declared themselves as either Protestants or Catholics. Because if you declared yourself Jewish on your dog tag, it was an H for Hebrew. And you can just imagine, a young soldier going into battle, last thing you wanted to happen is that they were captured by the Germans. This could be really, really terrible. And historically, that's exactly what turned out to be true. There were many soldiers, USGIs, who were captured. If they were Jewish, they were separated. Or if they were non-Jewish and looked Jewish, sounded Jewish, uh, had an unusual last name, they were separated on the suspicion that they were Jewish. And many of them were sent to the Berger concentration camp, which was a subcamp of, of Buchenwald, and many, many were worked to death or outright executed. So it was a real fear, a well-founded fear. So one of two things happened. Either they didn't declare themselves Jewish and they had a, a P for Protestants or a C for Catholic on the dog tag, or they had no religion at all. Um, or if they did have an H, a kindly sergeant before battle would say, hey, you know, Goldstein or, or Goodman, you need to you need to deface that dog tag and knock out that H. So if that soldier were killed in battle, you know, a clerk, a person from Graves Registration would naturally default to Protestant. That was certainly the vast majority of the population was Protestant. And that made sense. Do you think you've recovered most of the Jewish soldiers buried under crosses? Or how many do you think you have left to discover? Great question. So we've done 19... We are in the middle of investigating about, well, not about, 27 right now, and we think the total population that we're going to find is somewhere between four and 600 from World War II and about three to 400 in World War One. So that's the, so we've got, we've got a long road ahead of us. And so they get a Jewish star for a headstone at a new ceremony? They do. It's very, very beautiful. Um, and uh, the family members are there, and they speak, um, and it's always a journey for them as well. Um, very, very, very often, uh, let's say it's a, a niece or even a child of a soldier, um, they'll know very little about that soldier because most often they would speak to their mother about, you know, your own, your brother Simon, and mom would just start to cry. So I can't talk about it. It's too painful. No child wants to call the, cause their parents pain. And so that, that tradition of who that person was 
doesn't get transmitted. Well, through all this enormous research we're doing, we sort of get to introduce these soldiers to their families. And that's an amazing process. It's almost sort of uh, sometimes embarrassing for us to be involved, so involved in, in a family, but it's, it's really amazing. Uh, we're, we're bringing the stories of these soldiers to life. Shalom, Lamb. Thanks very much. Libby, thanks. It's wonderful speaking with you. That was amateur historian Shalom Lamb on Operation Benjamin. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.